Well, thank you to our band, and thank you all for being here on this Easter Sunday. We are starting a brand new message series that's called Resurrected. As I mentioned earlier, you can read about this message series and what we're going to cover during this series in the back of your bulletin. There's some information there. If you want to take a look at that now, let's see. And you can see this little blurb here. It says, before his crucifixion, Jesus made some very big claims about his identity and what he intended to accomplish in this world. The resurrection of Jesus validates every single one of those big claims. Now, you've probably already assumed this, but these little descriptions that we have about like the message series and the individual messages, like, I write all of this stuff. You knew that, right? So this is like, this is according to me, right? According to me, according to my beliefs, the resurrection of Jesus validates all the claims that he made about himself. Jesus made some very big claims about himself. He claimed to be the Messiah. And if that wasn't big enough, he claimed that he was the Son of God. And if that's not big enough, he claimed that he was equal to Father God. He made some very big claims about himself. And the fact that Jesus raised himself from the dead, to me, that's enough evidence to prove that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, and he really accomplished what he had set out to accomplish, right? But before we continue on in this message, we need to acknowledge something. Um, there is a difference between evidence and proof, right? There's a difference between evidence and proof. If you're trying to prove some, something to somebody, you might make your case and you lay out your evidence, and your evidence might be enough to prove to that person the case you're trying to make, or it might not be. About six or seven years ago, I was made aware that there are people on this planet who believe that the earth is flat. You've heard of flat earthers. People believe that the earth is flat. And we're not here to make fun of flat earthers today. That's not why we're here. But you could make a case and you could provide evidence for someone who believes that the earth is flat. You could lay out the imagery from space, the satellite images. You could put them on an airplane. You could send them up to space with Jeff Bezos. They could look down at the planet. You could provide them with evidence. And you could provide two flat earthers with the same amount of evidence. And some of those people, one of those, per those individuals might look at that evidence and say, you know what? You've proven it to me. I've considered the evidence and you have proven to me that the world is round. You could give somebody else that same amount of evidence, but it wouldn't be enough to, to prove it. Well, that's just those images are faked and that space trip was faked and all this, that, and the other. And so there is a difference, right, between evidence and proof. As they say, proof is in the eye of the beholder. Nobody actually says that, but you know what I mean. Proof is in the eye of the beholder. You consider the evidence. Is that evidence enough to prove it to you? So there is this difference between evidence and proof. Now, I know why you came here this morning. This is Easter Sunday. You want me to tell you the story of how Jesus rose from the dead. That's why you're here. And I'm going to tell you the story of how Jesus rose from the dead. But before I tell you that story, I need to tell you a few other stories. There's an occasion in the ministry of Jesus it's, uh, from Luke chapter 16. Jesus is uh, teaching a group of people, and there are a group of Pharisees that have gathered there. And this particular group of Pharisees, um, they are very much concerned about uh, maintaining their status and maintaining their wealth. And so Jesus tells a story to this group of Pharisees. And we don't know if this story that Jesus tells is a parable. Often Jesus tells parables. Um, these stories that are fictional, that are you know, illustrations, trying to prove a point, trying to make a point. So we don't know if this is a parable or if it's a true story. 
But it's from Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. I'm going to read this story. So again, this is a story that Jesus tells. And I've got a little subtitle in my Bible. It says, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So a few weeks ago, we talked about a man named Lazarus, that Jesus rises from the dead. This is not the same Lazarus. Apparently, Lazarus was a more common name back in those days. Not as common as Mary or John, but it was a more common name back in those days. And so here is a story that Jesus told. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Ooh, that's some lovely imagery, isn't it? Happy Easter, everybody. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And so for centuries, people have tried to figure out, what's the code here? What are we talking about, Abraham's side? Is this some kind of mysterious place? I actually think it's pretty simple, Abraham's side. It's a reference to this man being taken to where Abraham was. And so long story short, and to simplify things, this man was taken, this beggar who died was taken by the angels up to heaven where Abraham was. So we have to remember that Jesus is a Jewish man in a Jewish culture telling this story to other Jewish people. And so Father Abraham, that was the father of their faith, and so he was in heaven. This poor man is, dies, is taken to Abraham's side, is taken to where Abraham is. The rich man also died and was buried. He didn't go to where Abraham was. In Hades, where he was in torment, Hades, uh, some translations say hell, we're talking about the place of torment. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him. Again, this is the rich man. He's in hell. He's calling up to Abraham. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So Father Abraham says, I, I hear this request you're making. You want to send Lazarus down there to cool off your water so you can get some kind of relief, but, but we can't accommodate that request. There's this great chasm that's been set between us and you. Verse 27, still in Luke 16, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham, if you can't help me out, if you're telling me that there's no hope for me, at least would you send Lazarus back to warn my brothers? I don't want them to end up in this place. Abraham replied, They have Moses. And the prophets, let them, let your brothers listen to them. In other words, well, well hang on, you know, your brothers who are still alive, they, they have the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They, they have the Bible, they have the law, they have the history. They've had the history of how God has conducted himself over the course of human history. They have the commandments from God. They have the prophecies concerning all things, including the Messiah. They already have 
all the information. In fact, your brothers, they have all the information that, that Lazarus had. They already have access to this knowledge, to this wisdom. They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. If someone comes back from the dead, then, then that will be enough. That will be enough evidence, and then they will repent. Let's put this last verse up on the screen here. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not become convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Listen, guy, you're there, and you're in Hades, and you're in torment, and you want Lazarus to go and warn them that you, you want your brothers to avoid this fate, and that's admirable, but let me tell you, what makes you think? What makes you think that this will convince them? They already have Moses. They already have the law. They already have the prophets. They have the history of how God has performed miracles all throughout time and how God has provided. If that's not enough, what makes you think that someone rising from the dead will be enough? So Jesus tells this story to that group of Pharisees at this specific time. We move on in the life of Jesus. We arrive at this occasion, and uh, there's this event, maybe you've heard of this, where Jesus, um, he cleanses the temple, he purifies the temple. Have you heard this story? Where Jesus goes into the temple, he's about to celebrate Passover, so he goes to the temple. This is supposed to be a holy place, this is supposed to be a place of prayer, this is supposed to be a place dedicated to God and his will, and yet there are all these vendors set up, there are money changers, so you could come in from out of town and have your money exchanged there at the temple because you needed to pay the temple tax, you needed to pay for certain things using temple bucks, I guess you could say, right? And you could go there and you could buy your animal to be sacrificed so you wouldn't have to bring your animal from home. You could just buy it there. But it was a lot more expensive if you bought it there in the temple. It's like buying popcorn at the movie theater. They got you. What are you going to do, right? And so these were, were Jews ripping off their fellow Jews. And so Jesus sees this and he cleanses the temple. Now Jesus does this at least once, perhaps twice he does this. So Jesus is cleansing the temple. Let me read this for you. It's John chapter 2, verses 13 through 19. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He creates this scene of absolute chaos. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69 verse 9. Then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us? to prove your authority to do all this. Jesus, you've come in here acting like a boss. You've come in here with some kind of authority, like you can just do this and you can turn over the tables, you can drive these people out. What sign can you show us to prove us that you have some kind of a right to be doing this? Take a look at this next verse. Here's how Jesus responds. It says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. In the moment, the Jews thought, well, you must be talking you know, about something literal here. We're, we're sitting in a temple. We're here in a temple. And this temple took years and years and years to build. And here you are, Jesus, saying you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. But, of course, Jesus was speaking about a different 
temple. We move on to the life of Jesus. We get to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, that is a chapter that is action-packed, filled with miracles. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 13, Jesus heals a man who has a paralyzed hand. In chapter 15, we're told that after this happens, that many crowds, that means multiple crowds, go and follow Jesus, and he healed all of them. And so we don't have an exact number of how many people he healed. In verse 22, the same chapter, chapter 12, Jesus heals a man that's been possessed by a demon. This man is blind. He cannot speak. Jesus heals this man. No more demon. Now he can see. Now he can speak. After all these things take place, here's what happens. Chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. Let's put this up on the screen here. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees told Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Are you serious? He heals the man with the paralyzed hand. Multiple crowds follow and he heals them all. Heals the demon-possessed man. He was blind. Now he can see. He was mute. Now he can speak. Is, is that not enough for you? Yeah, but if you could just do like a sign. If you could just give us like some evidence. What are you talking about? You have got to be kidding me. Well, how much more is it going to take to prove to you? <sighs> Next slide. But then... But he replied to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Once again, Jesus foreshadowing something that's about to take place. And so we move forward in the timeline. We arrive at what many Christians call Holy Week. We arrive at Palm Sunday. Jesus is there to celebrate the Passover one last time. One last time. He arrives there on Sunday. He's greeted as a king by the people. Hosanna, Hosanna, they shout, God save us now. Lord save us now. That's what Hosanna means. They call him a king. He enters into Jerusalem on Thursday of that week. He celebrates the Passover one last time with his disciples, with his followers. Jesus takes that Passover meal and he hijacks this holiday. He makes it about him. He says, guys, once upon a time you ate this thin crackery bread and you remembered how God saved our people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. Now I want you to take this bread and I want you to eat it and I want you to remember me because I'm about to give up my body for you. So take it and eat it and remember me. And then he takes the cup. He says, once upon a time we had this cup and we were supposed to celebrate how God saved us by the blood of the innocent lamb and we had to paint our doors back in the days of Moses. We painted those doors with the blood of the lamb and the angel of death passed over us. That's what this holiday used to be about. Now I'm saying this is the blood of the new covenant that I am about to shed for you. Take it, drink it, and remember me. He celebrates that Passover with his disciples, reorienting what this whole holiday is is about, it goes out to pray, and hours later he's arrested by the temple guards. He's taken to the Sanhedrin. He's put on trial in the middle of the night by the Sanhedrin, this illegal trial. They find him guilty of blasphemy. They find him guilty of telling lies about God. They find him guilty of contradicting Scripture, but Jesus never contradicted Scripture. He only contradicted their misunderstanding. Of scripture. They take Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor, because they didn't want to kill Jesus. They wanted Pilate to do it. So they take Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate says, who is this guy? What's, what's this all about? And Pilate interviews Jesus, and Pilate can't find a reason to punish this man Jesus. 
says, I find no basis for a charge against him. I mean, clearly you're angry with him, but there's no, no crime has been committed here. And so eventually Pilate relents. He says, fine, if you're so angry at him, I'll have him beaten. And the Romans knew how to torture a person and to beat a person within an inch of his life. And they do that to Jesus. And Pilate says, here he is. Look how banged up he is. Look how he's been tortured. Now you take him. I'm done with him. They say, nope, that's not good enough. We want him crucified. And again, Pilate tries to release Jesus. Why do you want him crucified? He's done nothing wrong. And they keep pushing. You need to crucify. You need to crucify. And Pilate sees that he's getting nowhere. And so he backs down and says, fine, take him. Crucify him. They put him on the cross on Friday. He dies there on the cross. It's Friday. It's the afternoon. And so it's about to uh, become Sabbath. When the sun goes down on Friday night, the Jews were not allowed to work. So after Jesus dies on the cross, they kind of have to rush to put him in the tomb. And Jesus had a follower named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man. And, and, and Joseph says, we're going to give Jesus my tomb. And so he was a rich man. It was a rich man's tomb. And by the way, that was a prophecy about the Messiah, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's, listen, that's something you can't fake if you're trying to play Messiah. You have no control over where you're buried. So the body of Jesus is taken in haste, the body of Jesus, un, and unceremonially put in this tomb because the sun's about to set and they're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. So they quickly get it in the tomb. They seal it up. Sabbath begins at sunset Friday night. All day long Saturday, they're not allowed to work. And so Sunday morning comes. While it's still very early, there were some women who were followers of Jesus and they approached the tomb because if we're going to do this right. We had to put him in the tomb quickly. We're going to do this right. We're going to go and anoint the body and wrap it the way that is according to our custom. We're going to do this right. We're going to take our spices. We're going to take our oils and we are going to honor this man even though he's dead. We're going to honor him now. And so the 11 remaining disciples, they did not go to the tomb Sunday morning. It was the women who went. Why didn't the men go? I don't know. I mean, we know that they were afraid. Their rabbi had just been publicly executed, and so they had to feel like there's targets on our backs now. We've got to stay hidden. But the women, they weren't afraid, and they went. And on their way to the tomb, they're wondering to themselves, uh, how are we going to roll the stone away? We need to think this one through. What are we going to do when we get there? Well, little do they know, as they're on their way to the tomb, there was this event that had taken place. Now, Pilate had... A, a set of guards there guarding the tomb because the, the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin, they say, Pilate, can you guard this tomb because we don't want anyone to disturb the body. We don't want anyone to take the body. We don't want anyone claiming that Jesus came back from the dead. So can you please set up some guards there in front of the cave, in front of the tomb? And Pilate said, fine, that's fine. And so all the guards are there. So very early Sunday morning, there's this earthquake that takes place at the site of the tomb and some angels appear. And these Roman soldiers... The fiercest of the fierce are terrified and they flee. And so the women, they make their way, they're followers of Jesus, they make their way to the tomb and they're wondering, who's going to roll away the stone? They get there, the guards are gone, and the stone has been rolled away. And there's a man that they see, and later they realize it's an angel, a man that they see, and he says, well, why are you looking for the living among the dead? One of the women who was there was Mary Magdalene, and she was a woman who had been possessed by demons that Jesus had healed, and then she became a follower of Jesus, and so she goes back to the disciples and says, he's not there. We went, a few of us ladies went this morning, we went to the tomb, the stone's been rolled away, and he's not there. And so the guys are looking among themselves, 
And two of the disciples, Peter and John, said, we've got to go check this out. And so they risk leaving their little hideout. They take that walk. They go to the tomb, and they're there. And John runs there, and John's faster than Peter. So he gets there first, and he stands outside the tomb just looking inside. Didn't want to go in the actual tomb. Was afraid to go in the actual tomb. Didn't want to become unclean or unpure and have to go through the purification process that the Jews observed. So he stays outside of the tomb. Peter gets there next. He's a little bit slower than John, but he adds right in. And he says, what's going on? He sees the grave cloths lying there. He sees the garment that was wrapping Jesus' face, and he comes out to John and says, he's not, he's not there. Mary Magdalene is there with him. And I don't know, we don't know how long they spent out, like, what, what, well, now what? I mean, can you imagine that moment? That, well, now what? Where is he? And so they're there. And have you been, to, have you, you've probably, you've probably experienced something like this, where you want to be hopeful I mean, in their heart of hearts, they had to want to believe, is he back? Did he raise from the dead? But you don't want to be too optimistic because you don't want to have your spirit crushed if that, like, what happened? And so they're there for some time, and finally Peter and John, they leave. They go back to where the disciples were, but Mary Magdalene, she stays behind, and she's just crying, and she's just weeping. And there was a groundskeeper there on the property, a gardener who was taking care of the area. He approaches the woman, he approaches Mary and says, woman, why are you weeping? Well, I'm crying because they've stolen the body of Jesus. They've taken away my Lord. And sir, if you know where they've taken him, please tell me. The groundskeeper looks down at Mary and says, Mary. She looks up. She realizes there's no groundskeeper. It's not a gardener. It's Jesus. She recognizes him and she wipes away the tears and she reaches out to embrace him. And Mary runs back runs back to where the disciples were gathered and says, he's back. I saw him. Yes, the tomb is empty, but now I've seen him. What are they thinking in that moment? Peter and John are like, well, yeah, he was gone, but he wasn't there, and we didn't see him. And some kind of conversation had to take place in that little room where they were all huddled and hiding out. Some kind of conversation. What do you think this means? Could she have, can we trust her word? Did she say, was she just being kind of hysterical, right? She's just being emotional. Was she really seeing what she thought she saw? Like, what's going on here? And as they're having this debate, all of a sudden they hear the words, peace be with you. And they turn around, and he's there. He's in their midst. It's Jesus. He's back. And they are afraid because they think he's a ghost. He says, I'm not a a ghost. He has this resurrected body, and it's different than the body he used to have, but he's still bearing some of the scars from his former body. He has this this new body, but he reaches out and says, look, it's me. He shows them his hands, and they see the nail holes, the scars where the nails were when he was hung on the cross. And they're mystified by this. And he says to them, according to Luke's gospel, I love this, he says, you have anything to eat? I've been dead for a little bit. Yeah, anything to eat? And so they give him some broiled fish, and, and Luke's gospel says they just watch him. They watch him eat in front of them. He's back. And that was enough for John and Peter and the rest. When they saw him raised from the dead, when they saw Jesus back from the dead, that was enough evidence. Now, John and Peter and the other disciples, they had seen many, many miracles. They had watched Jesus heal the sick. 
Jesus healed the paralyzed. Jesus healed the demon-possessed. They had watched as Jesus turned water into wine. That's a pretty nice trick. They'd seen all of this. They had seen it all. They watched as Jesus calmed the storm. He commanded the wind and the waves, and even the wind and the waves obeyed him. They watched Jesus walk on water. They saw him raise three different people from the dead. They had so much evidence, so many signs. But now this, this, this was enough. Because who can raise themselves from the dead? And as Jesus stood there among them, I I wonder if John thought back to what Jesus had said. The passage that's in your bulletin. In fact, let's put it back up on the screen. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 14. Did John think back on this passage? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Jesus is referring to the Gentiles, us. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. No more Jew and Gentile, only one. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Yes, in recorded history, in the Bible, there are a few of these these very infrequent occasions where someone rises from the dead, but no one, when you talk about impossible on top of possible, no one can raise themselves from the dead, but Jesus did it. That was enough to prove to John and Peter and the rest that Jesus really was the Messiah, that he really was the Son of God, that he really was equal with God, and that his words really were worth listening to and obeying. That was enough evidence. It became proof in their eyes. What would it take to convince you? What would it take to convince you that Jesus really is who he claimed to be? The Messiah, the Son of God, equal with Father God. What would it take to convince you that all these things are true. Because right now in this room and watching online, there are people like me who already believe it, sure, but some of you don't. You're not sure what you think about all this stuff. And somebody invited here this morning, and I'm so glad you're here. And by the way, you look fantastic. You look great today. Thanks for coming out. You got all dressed up and you're here, but you're not sure what to make of all this. And it's an interesting story, and maybe parts of it are true. What would it take... This is, not, this is not a rhetorical question. What would it take to convince you that Jesus really is who he claimed to be? Like, think about it. What would it take? If he showed up, if he bust through those doors right now, if he ripped off the roof and descended, to, I mean, what would it take? I mean, we just had this roof put on Jesus. If we could not do that. But literally, what would it take? And then think, if that thing actually happened, would it be enough? Well, that was a trick. That was fake. That was a holograph. That was this. That was Photoshop. That was this. Whatever it was. Like, what, what would it actually take 
to convince you that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, here's the thing. With, with Peter and with John and the rest of the disciples, they didn't just believe that Jesus was and is the Son of God. They believed that his words were worth listening to and obeying. There's a saying I've heard. I've heard a few different preachers use this saying. that if, if someone raises from the dead, you're going to listen to that person. I don't know if that's true 100% of the time, but it's true for me. If someone raises themselves from the dead, I'm going to listen to what this person has to say. And they listened. They didn't just become believers in Jesus. They became doers of what he told them to do. They didn't just believe that he was the Son of God. They didn't just believe that he died on the cross for their sins. They didn't just believe that he was equal with God. They actually believed that his words were life and that his approach to life was worth following. They weren't just believers. They became doers. You realize that these men, these first followers of Jesus, these women and these men, they reoriented their lives around the teachings of Jesus. Now, there's one of these myths that exist in, in church world, or exists in Christianity, that believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that's some kind of a finish line, right? Like, that's what church people are all about. We're just trying to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God, and if you believe that, we've done our work. No, it's not the finish line. That's your starting point. Once we become convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be, then, then we're willing to obey and to do what he taught us to do. As a church, we believe. I mean, Jesus, he's proven it to us. I mean, the resurrection, it proves it to us. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. And we believe that Jesus is one with God. And we believe that the only way that we can get to heaven, the only way that we can be saved is through his sacrifice. And we believe that Jesus really did do what he claimed he was going to do, which is pay off our debts, the debt that we owed to God, the debt that we could not pay off. And we believe that everyone, regardless of their background, that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus as opposed to trusting in themselves will receive eternal life. And beyond that, we believe that the teachings of Jesus are worth obeying. Not only has Jesus proven that he is the Son of God, Jesus has proven to us that he is worthy of our obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, no one's done it but you. You raised yourself back from the dead. You laid down your life for us, your followers. You laid down your life for humankind. You sacrificed yourself for us. And we acknowledge that, God. Nobody killed you, Jesus. You sacrificed yourself for us. You're the only one that had the authority to do so. And you brought yourself back to life. And Jesus, that's, that's more than enough evidence for us. We thank you, Jesus, for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Father God, I pray that you would give us the courage to cheerfully obey. Jesus, you have given us your words, the words of life. You've given us your teachings. You've taught us how to 
treat one another. You've told us what to pursue in this life. So, Father God, give us the courage to not only believe, but to also obey. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.